Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we continue our Bible study series on the life of Peter that is subtitled From Fisherman to Follower of Jesus. The title of the lesson is The Cosmic Tug of War. You all know what tug of war is, right? That game that becomes a battle. And for people that are very, very competitive, it's not just a game, right? You got two teams and they're on opposite ends of a rope. And they are pulling to see which team is strongest to pull the other team over that line. Or if you're more aggressive, into the muddy ditch. Whatever is between, right? Um, yeah. Uh, it can be fun, as long as somebody doesn't get hurt. But the idea of two teams maybe equally matched, and they're just pitting their strength back and forth and back and forth. And I just thought of that when I... Thought when I was looking at the uh, story we're going to be looking at tonight in Peter's life about this cosmic tug of war, you know, good versus evil. I mean, that's a theme totally apart from spiritual things or Christian things. I mean, uh, there's a large group of people out there in the world that love the superhero movies, you know, the Marvel movies, and it's always good versus evil, and even the people that are into all the Star Wars stuff, which is a humongous franchise, it's good, the good force versus the bad force, and all that kind of, you know, the reason I think why we all relate to that, most people relate to that, is because this world is full of good, and it is full of evil, and unless somebody is tremendously twisted or, or, or um, has had their conscience so seared for whatever reason, we're on the side of good. We want good to prevail, especially good for us, right? <laughs> There's the selfish part comes in. You know, we don't want what is evil to prevail, at least evil that's done against us. And in the Bible, we see that that same tug of war is there, that same battle, good versus evil. God versus Satan and all the powers and forces at his disposal, okay? But the thing that we've got to keep in mind that is different than a lot of the non-biblical viewpoint stories or whatever this is that God and the devil are not equal. Okay. God is all powerful and Satan isn't even close to him. Now we need to be very careful. We don't get too proud. We'll talk about this a little bit more later on tonight. We're not a match for Satan on our own. Okay. He's a lot more powerful. He's a lot smarter than we are. He knows the Bible better than we do. And I don't care how long you've been studying it and memorizing it. Okay, so he is a force to be reckoned with. The good news is we have God on our side. Of course, that raises the question, well, if God is really all-powerful and Satan is not near as powerful, then why does he let Satan get away with what he gets away with? We're going to talk about that at least a little bit tonight, okay? Um, We have this kind of summarized in something Jesus said, of course, in a lot of stories in the Bible, but in John 10.10, when Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we have this cosmic, this um, battle between God and his forces, Satan and his forces. Um, who is going to win? Oh, come on, this is the easiest question tonight. God, right? I mean, is there any doubt? No. You thought it was a trick question? I know, I asked trick questions. Okay. Ultimately, in the battle for this world and in God's eternal purpose, God is going to win. There's no doubt about that. 
All right. But what about in our personal lives? Who's going to win? God? Always? Does evil, does evil or that which is bad or wrong or sinful ever get the upper hand in our lives? Yes. So in those situations where evil or sin does get the upper hand in our lives, why is that if God is more powerful than Satan? What makes the difference? What? Because we allow it and because we not only allow it, sometimes we cause it. We bring it into our own lives. That's where this cosmic tug of war comes in in a personal way. Not just God versus Satan. God's going to ultimately win. But in our own lives, there is this tug of war. We have an enemy. Okay? And um, he's got somebody on the inside. You want to put it that way? You know, you can watch a movie and the enemy comes against this stronghold or whatever. And they got somebody on the inside. Boy, that makes it a whole lot easier for them to infiltrate. We got that sinful human flesh. On the inside that draws us away from God, you know, but if we know Jesus, we've got his spirit dwelling within us. And that's a whole nother aspect of that tug of war. God's spirit within us, but our sinful flesh and our enemy on the outside. And he uses the world. You've heard the world, the flesh and the devil, you know, all those things that pull against us. We're in the middle. And can I tell you that when we're talking about specific circumstances in our lives, in most cases, God's not going to override our will. And the victory is going to come by which side we side with. If we say, God, I'm facing this temptation. I'm facing this trial. Your spirit's within me. I want to have victory. I'm depending on your power. And we do that. God will win. And his forces of power will have victory. But if we give in to the flesh, Satan may gain a temporary, a temporary emphasize that temporary victory in our lives. And we can recover from that. Every single one of us have experienced that, haven't we? Anybody in here not fallen to temptation? Done the wrong thing in the midst of trial and test? No. That shouldn't give us an excuse to just do what we want. Say, oh, God will forgive me later. He'll help me recover. Because you know what? The consequences stay. we still got to deal with those. It's not that we're all that powerful. It's just that God has a reason for allowing those things in our lives, and most times he does not violate our will. Now, God can do anything he wants. God is sovereign, and the fact that we can make choices that can allow evil to have a victory in our lives from time to time does not mean that God's not in control and that we have to doubt whether he's really going to come through in the end because there's nothing that we can say or do, good, bad, or indifferent, that will keep God's purposes from being accomplished. God can take all people doing all kinds of terrible things and still make his purposes be accomplished. All right. But this is an issue that has a tremendous bearing on our lives because it makes a difference between whether we walk in victory, experiencing God's peace and the knowledge we're free from sin and his joy, or if we walk in defeat and guilt and shame, you know. Um, there's an old story. You've probably heard it before about an Indian teaching his grandson and he's talking to him about good and bad. And he says, there's these two dogs. One's white and one's black. They're both equally strong. And they're going to fight each other. Which one, grandson, do you think will win? And the grandson, I don't know. Which one? He says, whichever one you feed the most. Okay? And that's kind of the way it is. Y'all laughed like you hadn't heard that story before. Had any of you ever heard that story before? Oh, I've heard it so many times, I just assumed you did too. Anyway, whichever one you feed them us. So let's look at this story in Luke chapter 22. This is um, 
uh, in the upper room, you know, which is the night Jesus is going to be betrayed, the next day he'll be crucified, all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says and does a lot of things with his disciples that night. But as part of that, in Luke 21, starting at verse 31, he turns to Peter. And it's interesting that he calls him Simon, which is his name, you know, before Jesus says, you're going to be called Peter. So this is kind of ominous. And he says his name twice. You know, when you say somebody's name, it's like, well, Sonny, Sonny. <laughs> you can hear it coming, right? So, you, got, you got my number. Verse 20 and 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Some translations say Satan uh, asked. And the word there can mean asked, but it has the meaning of asked, and he believes he has the right for it, so he's asking, like, give it to me. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. You know, Peter's known for a number of things, but some of the most well-known things are walking on the water, you know, but then probably denying Jesus three times is one of the things he's well-known for. He failed. He failed fell. He gave in to temptation. He went through a testing time and he did not pass at that moment. All right. Let me ask you a question. Was Peter a special case? Was he a special target? Yes. No. How about both? I think he was, but yet he wasn't. Something you can't pick up in the English, but in the original language in verse 31, the use there are plural. Now, if this was written in Southern English, it would say, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, okay, that he might sift y'all like wheat. He's talking about the whole group, all right? And they all faced testing that night. They didn't all go to the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus, but they all faced a temptation, testing and temptation when Jesus was betrayed and was arrested, Okay, and so he warns him. He's he's talking to Simon because Simon's kind of the leader, right? And he did single Simon out because Satan did because Simon's going to be the aggressive one. He is going to follow Jesus to the courtyard. He is going to be put in a more precarious situation at that particular moment. So, no, he's not a special case. No, he wasn't singled out because Satan actually wanted to trip him all up. But yet he was a special case because of his specific circumstances. And the same thing is true for us. He's after all of us. But I can tell you that he'll really come after us at certain specific times and in some cases specific people, especially if they're in leadership. Because when you have a leader that fails, it causes more problems because of their example and all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, we have seen that all too often with great spiritual leaders who have given themselves over and become discovered that they failed the test. Okay. So anyway, um, this story is kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what happens when we're tempted. It's, it's similar to the story of Job. You know, if you read Job, uh, the first two chapters, it talks about how in heaven God's there with his angels and Satan shows up and, and God's kind of bragging, I'm not in a sinful way, God doesn't sin. He says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? I mean, he's pretty good. I mean, he's, he's really trying to serve me. He's really trying to do the right thing. And Satan says, because you blessed him so much. Why wouldn't he serve you? Nothing bad ever comes his way. He's rich. He's got a wife. He's got kids. You know, all this stuff. He says, you let me, you know, you, you let hardship come his way. And of course, God says, okay, I give you permission. And he says, just don't do anything to him. 
and all the terrible things that happen to his children, they all die, his, his crops, his herds, you know, Satan leaves his wife alone, but she becomes a problem because she's, why don't you just curse God and die, you know? And um, I would I won't say that Job says, why didn't you take her too? But anyway, <laughs> at the moment, um, but, uh, but Job still clings to his faith in God. And so Satan comes back to heaven and God says, see, Job, I let you do some things. He says, yeah, well, you didn't let me touch him. He says, okay, go ahead. And so, of course, Job gets the boils and all that kind of stuff. And Job still didn't fail God. Job wasn't perfect, but he still clung to his faith in God. That's what the whole story of Job's about. Okay. And so in the same way, just like Satan had to get permission from God to do what he did, and God gave him permission. In this, Jesus is saying, Simon, Satan's asked for permission. He's demanded permission to really mess with you guys. But I'm praying for you. Okay. So let's jump into these couple of thoughts. I, the, the notes are a little bit sparser tonight, but it's the most important stuff we need to really grab from this. Okay. The first one is this warning. Satan demands to test us. Satan demands to test us. That's one of the reasons why I asked, is Peter a special case? Was he just singled out? Well, yes and no. Okay. The no part is Satan wants to do the same to us. We can't say, well, that was Peter. Thank God I'm protected from that. No, Satan wants to mess with us. All right. He wants to, he wants to, 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 to cause us to trip, to fall, to give in to sin, to give in to temptation and all the consequences that'll bring to our lives and to the lives of the people that will be influenced by what we do. Okay. Whether directly because of a consequence of our sin or failure or because of our influence and our example. Peter is speaking from experience in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. We studied this back a while ago. Last year we were looking through 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Uh, I should have put it in there, but James says that we need to resist the enemy. If we resist him, he'll flee. But we've got to resist him. And that's not as easy as it sounds. Well, we've got to do it, okay? But sometimes we read these books like First Peter, and we don't even think about who's writing them. Next time you read through First and Second Peter, and you're reading through it, we'd stop everyone to say, well, how does this relate to Peter's life? What did Peter go through? Because we know a lot about Peter. That's why we're studying his life. There's a lot of things in First Peter especially, but also First and Second Peter, that when you think of it, that was like, that's why he's saying that. Because he went through that. He experienced that, you know, and he's giving this warning. Be sober. Be what? You've got an adversary. You've got this devil. I mean, he could have thrown that in there. If he preached on this one sometime, he might have said that, but they said, let me give you an illustration, you know, and he could refer right back to this story. So Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Peter, uh, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you. Sift you, all right? That's a picture from their culture. It came up in a sermon or Bible study recently. The whole idea of reaping grain, and you take it to the um, to the threshing floor. You've got the grain, and it's inside this husk, and it's got to be separated, so you got the good grain, and, and they'd put it on the threshing floor. It was usually on a hillside where the winds would come by at nighttime, and they would drive the oxen over it, and sometimes with a threshing, what they call a threshing sled, um, that would kind of, Crush that up a little bit so that the chaff would break loose, but you still got this pile of wheat with all this dusty chaff and sometimes little sticks and stuff like that in it. And so there's two different ways they could sift it. Um, they could use a sieve, you know what that is. They throd throw it in there and they'd shake it, you know, and 
shake it all up and stuff, and then the, the smaller stuff would fall through, and you get out all the, the sticks and stones and things like that. But then also they would have the winnowing fork that they would take, and they'd throw it up in the air, and the wind at night would blow the chaff, which was a lot lighter, just away, and the heavier wheat would just fall to the ground, and they would do that over and over and over again. And then when you get done, you've got mostly just the grain that's laying there, and all the chaff has been blown away. And it's a great picture, too, because that's a purifying process. That gets a, We're a little jumping ahead of ourselves, but that's one of the reasons why God lets us happen in a personal way. But he says, Satan has demanded that he be able to have you guys. He's going to sift. He's going to shake you up. He's going to throw you up in the air. He's going to let you be tumbled about, and we're going to see what the result is. Okay. So, what is Satan's purpose in all this? What does Satan want to accomplish? Why did he ask to have Peter do do this to Peter, Chris? It's part of the whole stealing, killing, and destroying thing. All right. What does he hope to accomplish in Peter's life? What? That he disproves who God is? Is that what you said? Okay. Yeah, that he's a bad example. That he basically would come across like, you know, you claim to believe in Jesus and you're all for him and stuff, but look at you. You know, he wants him to fail. He wants him to fall. You know, it's interesting. I've mentioned this before, that the word for tempt and the word for test are the exact same word in the Greek. They're a little bit two different concepts. How do you know which way to translate it? It depends on who's doing it. Satan tempts people and he wants them to fail. God doesn't tempt people. He doesn't want them to fail. He will test them. He'll let them go through things. Or not just let them, but sometimes he causes them to go through things. But his purpose isn't to cause them to fail. It's to allow them to succeed. You know, when an engineer designs a bridge, they test it. Is it because they want to see it collapse? No, they want to prove that it won't. And so... Anyway, that's the idea behind here. So he calls him Satan. The title Satan literally means adversary or the accuser. Okay. And I find it interesting that when he says this, like, as I said in that first, that 31st verse, it's plural. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you all, all of you guys, that he might sift all of you guys like wheat. That included Judas. Judas faced his own test, didn't he? Peter becomes a great man of God. Judas hangs himself. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? They both failed. What? One repented. That's the big difference. Now, I think their hearts were different. I think by the time Judas got to the point where he was willing to betray Jesus, he didn't care that much about Jesus. He was out for himself. When Peter fell, he really loved Jesus. He just got himself into a bind, and he did the wrong thing. So his hearts were a little bit different. But even in spite of that, if Judas would have repented, God would have forgiven him too. But he didn't. And without repentance, all he had left was despair, and he killed himself. But Peter repented. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, do you think Jesus wasn't praying for Judas? No, no. Oh, okay. I just, I didn't know what you were trying to insinuate there. Yeah, Jesus says he was praying for Peter. Oh, yeah, Jesus knew it all. Yeah. And that is a good thing to point out because, you know, when Jesus was here in the flesh, he had limited himself to some degree in his knowledge. You know, he said, you know, I'm going to come back one day, but I don't know when that is yet. I believe Jesus knows now. Back now he's in heaven, but he didn't when he was on earth. Okay. But obviously God allowed him to know what Peter was going to do and he allowed him to know what Judas was going to do. 
Okay. But he was praying for him. That's going to be our second point we'll get to. So anyway, just to reinforce something I said earlier, Satan does focus on leaders, uh, people of influence of any kind, but that includes not just people you think of like pastors and elders and deacons, but parents, you know, um, teachers. Uh, to be honest with you, we're all leaders to some degree. We all have people that we have under our influence. Okay. And um, he wants them to fail. Now, here's an encouraging thought. I've got this on your note sheet. Satan must get permission. Now, this is hard for us to accept sometimes, but there's nothing that comes our way in life, whether a test or a temptation or a difficulty we go through or whatever, that God has not allowed. Okay? And that reason, and that's true of Job, it's true of Peter, and it's true of us. And, and we'd say, you know, Jesus said, Satan's demanded to have you. Obviously, God gave Satan permission. In Job's case, gave Satan permission. In Peter's case, He's given him permission in the t- things that we face. And the question comes up, why does God do that? We're going to come back to that. I'm sure you got some good answers to that. But before we go on, I just want to say this. We've got to be very careful that we don't do what we often do and go to extremes in our view of Satan. Sometimes we think of as being more powerful than he is. Sometimes we are, have the misconception, I've, I've known of people that have had the misconception, you guys probably don't, where they think that Satan and God is kind of equal. It's like, oh, who's going to win? No, no, God's got it all under control. God's sovereign. God's all-powerful. Satan can't even hold a candle to him, you know, okay? But sometimes we underestimate Satan, and sometimes it's because of confidence we have in Christ, and we should have confidence in Christ, but if we our confidence isn't in Christ, if it's in us, it's like, I can handle whatever Satan throws at me. I'm a Christian. But it's not because we're in Christ and we're depending on him and his power and his Holy Spirit. We're just setting ourselves up for a fall because that's where Peter was, right? Jesus, I love you, man. I'll go to the... He said it more than once. It wasn't just this passage. Other times, he says, Jesus, I'll go to prison. I'll go to my death. Okay? Boastful because he underestimated his enemy and overestimated his own strength in himself. Okay? All right, so we got to be careful that we don't do that. Peter is very overconfident, and he is most of the time. Okay, all right. I like this. Somebody said that Satan's sort of like a mean dog on a leash. Have you ever seen one of those cartoons? It's got that mean old dog. He's on a leash or on a chain, and somebody gets and he's and run out there, and he can only go as far as the chain will let him. Satan can only as far as God will let him. He can only go as far as God will let him. But it doesn't mean that we need to take it lightly. Okay? All right. So anyway, I like this. The pillar commentary said this. Satan can provoke a conflict, but he cannot determine its outcome. Okay? So that brings to the second encouraging point here, the promise. Jesus prays for us. I know this passage says he's praying for Peter, but I believe he prayed for each of the disciples. I know he prays for us. The Bible tells us. We're going to read some scriptures here. Again, he says, Simon, Satan's demanded to have you, all of you, that he might sift all you, all of you like wheat. But when he gets to verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you. And the, the Greek there is literally you. I'm talking about you, Peter, just you. Not that he's not praying for the others, but right now I'm focused on you. I'm talking to you. I have prayed for you personally. Now, I'm going to pray for you, although I'm sure he did that. But I have prayed for you. I knew this was coming up. I have prayed for you. And as Nora pointed out, he already knew it was going to happen. And he says, that your faith may not fail. Now, did his faith fail? Did God not answer his prayer? Was it useless for Jesus to pray that his faith would not fail? Because, I mean, Peter still denied him. <laughs> you all say, is that another one of those trick questions? 
the 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 connotation of that fail is fail and remain failed. Fail, utterly fail, okay? Peter did fail in that instant. He did, but he didn't stay that way. Ultimately, he did not fail. Along the way, he did some things that were failure. So, anyway, Jesus had prayed for him. And, um, again, comparing it to Job, one of the things that Job did say is, I wish there was just somebody that could stand between me and God. Some kind of mediator, somebody to be between us. And he literally said, well, let me read to you, Job 9.33. There is no arbiter or mediator between us who might lay his hand on both of us. And was connected to God, connected to me, to help us get this communicated, to help us get this worked out. There really isn't any. But, you know, that's not true for us. We have a mediator. We have Jesus. Hebrews 7.25. He, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is making intercession for us. He is praying for us. Paul put it in Romans 8.34 when he talks about how the enemy will want to condemn us. But he says, "Who's gonna? who can be successful? I'm paraphrasing it. Who can be successful condemning us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, He was raised, and he's at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is right there at the right hand of God, talking to God for us and on our behalf. Okay. So what does he pray for us? A couple other scriptures here. John 17, 11, that great prayer that's at the end of his time with the disciples in the upper room. And and, uh, John 17, we studied that back last year too. Okay, when he's praying for his disciples, and he's praying for all of his followers that will ever follow him. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them, which means protect them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as I am. He says, Father, keep them, protect them. He prays that God protect us, that God keeps us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was the person who stood between people and God. He went to God on their behalf to offer sacrifices, to ask for forgiveness, and he came back to the people from God to be able to grant that forgiveness because they'd done what God asked, and he was kind of, he was the mediator, okay? He says, since then we have the great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let us hold fast to our faith. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's not just need like, oh, Lord, I need some money. I need some help with this relationship. Lord, I need help with work, at school, with my marriage, with my kids. But Lord, I'm facing a tough thing. The enemy's trying to sift me. He's trying to shake me. He's trying to bring me down. I need your help. He says, hold fast to our faith. Jesus knows what you're going through. He will help you. He's praying for you. Okay, so Jesus prays for us. I believe Jesus prays for us by name as individuals. How can he do that? There's so many people. Because he lives outside of time. He's got all the time he needs. He can't forget any of us. Just like he'll always be with us, he can pray for each of us. And the thing that we see in this story, and it's true for us, Jesus prays even knowing what's going to happen. With Peter, he's going to deny Christ. He's going to lie. He's going to curse. And that doesn't mean he's cussing, okay? 
What that literally means is that Peter's saying something like, no, I don't know Jesus. I don't have anything to do with him. May God strike me dead. Okay, that literally be what he's, what, what the context of what he's saying. Well, it depends on what you, what you mean by swearing. If you're talking about cussing, no. But if you're talking about, I swear, I don't have anything to do with him. I don't know him. And that would be the way you would do it. You know, as God is my witness, may God strike me dead if I'm telling a lie, whatever. I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. That's what he's doing, okay? And, um, of course, Jesus also knew that once he realized what he did, and I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus told him ahead of time what he was going to do, that he was going to deny him. He knew it wouldn't keep him from doing it, but that when it happened and that rooster crowed, Peter would be like, oh, what did I just do? And one of the gospel writers, I don't know if it's Luke or one of the others, it says that at that moment, he was within eyesight of Jesus, whether through a window or a door or something, and Jesus looked at him, and it says that he left that courtyard. We'll, we'll look at it as we continue to study his life. And he wept bitterly. He repented, you know. And I love Jesus' sense of humor because when he restored, well, a couple of things there, you know, the Resurrection Sunday, he tells the women, go back and tell my disciples and Peter. He pointed Peter out because he probably figured that Peter was saying, I'm not a disciple anymore, not after what I did. And then on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when he asked Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. That's where I talk about his sense of humor. I guarantee you he asked him three times because Peter denied him three times, you know. So anyway. So it's interesting. What did Jesus ask for? Okay. We don't know. He just said, I prayed for you. I mean, he says that your faith not, may not fail ultimately. Notice that Jesus didn't ask him, ask, didn't pray, Father, don't allow Satan to sift Peter. He didn't say, Father, do not allow Satan to mess with your kids. Isn't that what we wish he would pray? <laughs> no, he says, Lord, Satan's down there. He's going to be messing with them. Don't let them fail. When they fail, help them to get back up again. May they be like Peter, not like Judas. But he doesn't say, God, just lock Satan up. Don't let him mess with him. We wish he would. But that does bring us to this question, okay? Why doesn't he pray? Lord, don't let Satan be able to touch him. Why does God allow Satan to mess with us? So give us your best ideas. There's a lot of different reasons, but why does God allow Satan to mess with us? I'm sorry, what? We do have free will, and that's what causes the problems because sometimes we choose the wrong thing. But even in spite of that, he could say, okay, Satan, don't mess with them. You know, let it just be between them and their flesh, but he lets Satan have an influence. Why does God allow Satan to mess with us? Uh, Chris had us in up first, and then Lisa, and then Lynn. Go ahead, Chris. What's the reason? Okay. So if I could paraphrase what you're saying for the recording, we don't become perfect disciples as soon as we get saved. We've got to grow. And growing involves pruning. It involves things that will strengthen us, and battle will strengthen us. Okay, Lisa? It helps teach us to learn to depend upon God. Lynn? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a good point. We're talking about Satan's involvement, but like like we mentioned before, he's got we got an enemy within. We got our sinful flesh, and we got the whole forces of the world which Satan manipulates in his forces. And you're right, Satan is not omnipresent. We probably will never actually face Satan himself. Okay, 
and I don't mean just because we see him, but even in our own. But he's got plenty of help. All right. Yes. The point between saying Satan has to ask permission is that God will not allow Satan or any of his forces to do anything that he does not allow. Okay. And the stories that we do have show Satan talking to God and getting permission from God. Did he specifically ask permission about Eve? We don't know. We know the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. But that is a very good point, though. We can't say every time we face something, the devil's after me and it's the devil's fault. It could just be our flesh. Okay? All right? But there are spiritual forces working along with our flesh. And sometimes people like to follow that great theologian, Flip Wilson, who said, the devil made me do it. You all remember him? It shows your age if you do. (laughs) Okay? The devil made me do it. You know, we can't use that excuse. He may have had a hand in it or his spiritual forces, but we still made the choice. And if we know Jesus, we have the power available to say no. Okay? But you're right. It could be our flesh. But the same thing is true. Why does God allow Satan to tempt, test, or sift us? Why does he allow us to battle our flesh? Same reasons, the things that were just said. You know, God knows that there's going to be good come out of it. I've got that on your note sheet. As we depend on God, the testing process will have a good result for us and for others. Let's read a couple of passages here that talk about that. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, yet lacking nothing. First uh, Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't put it on here, but, you know, Paul talks a couple times about, you know, we go through really tough stuff, but the end result's going to be worth it. And the implication is it's because we went through the tough stuff that we're going to have the rewards and the benefits on the other side. You know, this is the way life works. You don't build a really buff body like so many of you have without exercise and discipline and hard work, right? Doing tough stuff. And those of us that don't have that really buff body is because we haven't done, okay? Uh, yeah, you've got to go, you know, you don't get a, a, a really great degree in education without the hard work. Why do parents let their kids go through tough stuff? Because it's what's going to develop them. Why do they make them go to school? <laughs> to get them out of the house. No, <laughs> so they'll get a good education. Why do we make them do chores? Because we want them to develop and grow into, you know, and, and, and kids think chores are terrible, fiery ordeals. All right? Because we want them to grow and develop. In the same way, God will let the enemy mess with us sometimes. And he'll let us battle our flesh because he wants us to grow. All right? And as I said, it's not just us. It can have a good result for others. I think that's partly behind what he, what Jesus said there. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, listen, you're going to mess up, but you're going to come back. And when you do, I'm going to use you. Okay? I'm going to use you. That word turn there means to turn back or to return, and it's related to the same word of repent. That's what repent means. It means you're going one way, you're going to turn back. Okay? And he says, strengthen your brothers. And here's the good news. Peter failed. Peter fell. But it didn't disqualify him for ministry. Now, please understand, there are certain things according to God's word. If a leader does, it will disqualify them from certain 
ministries. There's only a few little examples of that, but it doesn't disqualify them from salvation, and it doesn't disqualify them from all ministry. It's just certain positions leaders can't hold if they do certain things, because there's a lot of responsibility that goes with that. But our failures and our fallings do not disqualify us from repentance and you know our salvation and from being used by God. Uh, another quote from that same commentary says, Peter will be knocked down, but not knocked out. Okay. All right, so does this mean that Peter was destined to fall? Was he destined to fail? No, Jesus knew he would, but it was still his choice. And the good news is God never gives up on us when we fail. In fact, he can turn our failures into victories, all right? Now, I know you're looking at your notes. She's saying, it's time to leave, and you got all this stuff. Well, these important lessons we've already talked about, but let's just summarize here. The important lessons we can learn from this. Number one, we are sinners and have a sinful nature. Don't take that lightly. We do have a sinful nature, and because of that, we're prone to failure. We need to be on our guard. Second one, we must beware of pride. When we think we've got it under control, we better watch out. But neither do we need to go, I can't do this, I can't do this. No, with God's help and the power of his Holy Spirit, we can do this. But don't be caught up in pride. The third one, we must be dependent on God. We need him, his grace, his mercy, his strength, his prayers, his spirit, his power. We can walk in victory, but we're not going to do it in ourselves. Okay? And number four, we can be used of God in spite of our weaknesses and failures. God can use humble and broken people. The last thing on there, the key is prayer. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he leaves the disciples behind, but he says, Peter, James, and John, come a little further with me. And then he leaves them in one place and goes a little bit further. And he's praying and he comes back and they've fallen asleep. And he's already said, don't fall asleep. Pray with me. And they don't. But in Luke twenty-two forty-six, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The implication is if you stay prayerful, if you stay watchful, you pay attention, watch out for your enemy, ask God for help, you'll be victorious. Okay, and then going back to what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, we started with this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You have an adversary, the devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. And you can have victory. we got to pray. It's time to go. Father, thank you for this time that we had to look at another episode in Peter's life. We can so relate. Sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. We thank you that you didn't give up on Peter. You never give up on us. Thank you, Lord, that there is forgiveness available to us when we repent of our sin and you can still use us. But God, may we never use that for an excuse to just go ahead and sin. God, help us to walk in the victory you make available to us over Satan, over the flesh, over the worldly influences as we trust in you and your Holy Spirit and your power in our lives. And Father, I pray for anybody that may be here tonight or listening to this recording later that maybe this week they really failed and they failed bad. And maybe they've just been thinking about giving up. Lord God, I pray that this would encourage them. Don't give up. Don't have Judas's response. I don't mean suicide, but just giving up. But Lord, may they come to you and say, God, I'm sorry I failed. And maybe this is the fifth time I've failed in the same way over the last month. But God, I'm going to pick myself back up with your help. And I want to go forward and experience victory. And I thank you, Lord, that you will bring victory to us. And I thank you that one day we won't face the world, the flesh, and the devil anymore. Thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online 
If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.